Greetings, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Decision Hour. I am your host, Adam Bird, and this show is all about philanthropy, business, and positivity. And I got a great guest for you guys lined up today. This guy is coming in from the other side of the world. So it's a real special treat because locking this guy, this guy is all over the place. He's worldwide. Um, he specializes in influence, impact, and income. And this cat's on a mission uh, to teach a million businesses. I'm going to let you guys let that sink in. For you. He is on a mission to teach a million businesses how to catapult their influence, accelerate their impact, and unleash new income levels. So those of you that are just tuning in right now, grab a pen, a pad of paper, and get ready to take some notes because my friend Daniel Tolson is joining us today. Daniel, how are you, brother? Oh, man, I am good. I am. Um, I got out of bed for this. I, appreciate <laughs> I, went, to, I went to sleep at 6 p.m. tonight. Oh, my goodness. Well, we, I, I'm good. I, I'm fired up. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much, man, for, for appreciate, uh, appreciate you coming on on the show. So let's dive into it. Tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself. Well, uh, let me tell you this one. My mum was in porn. My dad was in porn. Really? <laughs> and, uh, and we owned a pawnbroking business. <laughs> you know, like the one in Vegas, Pawn Stars? Yeah. <laughs> so wow. we had a pawnbroking business for 17 years. And uh, we lived in the western suburbs of Sydney. And it was the most fascinating business. Uh, I remember just before I left the, the family business and um, moved on to greener pastures, a, a young fella came in and he had a video camera. He said, hey, man, he goes, would you lend me some money on this video camera? I said, yeah, how much is like a hundred bucks? I said, okay, let me take a look at it. So I opened it up and, you know, video cameras back then had a viewfinder on the side. So I opened up the viewfinder and my eyes must have just gone boom and exploded when I pressed play. And I looked at it and he goes, is it working? I said, yeah, this is definitely working. My brother says, the camera working? I said, absolutely. He said, how much do you want? I said, a hundred bucks. And he goes, yep. I said, deal done. Anyway, he went out the street and I said to my brother, I said, look at an absolute fucking ripper here. He said, what is it? I said, press play. <laughs> and about 10 minutes later, this guy comes back in and his face is red like a tomato. <laughs> and he said, I, um, I think I might have left a tape in there. And his girlfriend's standing at the front door with her arms crossed. And I said, I think you did. <laughs> Got a sneak peek of uh, a little more than you bargained for, huh? Yeah, worth a uh, hundred bucks. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Oh god, that is awesome. That is awesome. So you go from the pawn business, and in so my, my my first question right off the bat is is and, and th- real quick, those of you that are listening. Go to Dan has got an awesome website. Go check it out. It's Daniel Tolson, T O L S O N dot com. Uh, so if you're listening to the show, it means you're already on the internet. Just open up another browser and you can scroll through as you as you're listening to the show. Danny, what got you started in your business? What from the pawn business into what you're doing now? What was that transition like? What, what where did that decision come from? Like that's just kind of opposite from what you're doing now. So what to walk us through that decision in, in getting into the business that you're in. 
to get to that decision, I think probably things have got to go back to the past, even further back. Okay. So let's say age 11, I've been diagnosed with linear sequential learning disability. And uh, I was in remedial therapy for five years. Okay. Now, I used to get these bleeding noses. My nose would just start to bleed. And my parents are trying to figure out what's going on with me. And so at that time, I was also doing a part-time job and I was a paper boy. And one day I left my paper round. I got my uh, little cart back to the news agency. My uncle, who was my boss, gave me my money. And I went out and I was making a donation to charity. And my mum saw me and she said, Daniel, what are you doing? And I thought, oh, gee, I'm in trouble because I had a dollar and I gave half of it away to the charity. She said, what are you doing giving half your money away? And I said, I just like to help people. So in terms of decisions, and I love that because I talk a lot about limiting decisions in the work that I do. Whenever there's a decision, mm. there's an event that follows. And then there's a series of beliefs that hold the decision in place. Yeah. So I knew at a young age, 11, that I wanted to help people. And so at age 16, I then started coaching the sport of wakeboarding. And I remember I wasn't the best rider. There was people who were better than me. I, I, was, I had a lot of fears, and so I didn't really uh, get as far as a lot of other people at the start. And people would come to me and they'd say, hey, Danny, can you teach me how to do this trick? And I said, well, what trick do you want to learn? And they'd say, I want to do like a, a, a backflip. And I'd go, well, here are the three steps. Then they go, I want to do a front, step, a front flip. And I'm like, well, do these five things. And so at age 16, I was interviewed by a water skis magazine. And they asked me a series of questions. What are your goals? What do you want to do with your life? What's your special talent? And I didn't know how to answer that. And my brother said, he's a good coach. So at 16, I'm already coaching water sports, people older than me, people better than me. And these people are becoming Australian champions and world champions. And I had this gift of being able to see something and break it down. And so I traveled around the country, ended up traveling around the world doing that. So after working in the pawnbroking business, I went to Dubai and I was coaching locals and expatriates how to wakeboard. And so these are a couple of the decisions that were in place. And this started at a young age. Shop. You said you started this at, at 16. 16. I mean, that's that's so profound. Like you you think in today's age, I mean, I, I'm a little seasoned, you know, so it's, it's like you look at, you know, our era and you look at today's kids, like how many 16-year-olds do you know that you meet now that 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 have that that mentality or the maturity to do something like that? It, that's so, I think now, my son's 19 and I was very blessed to, to have him be at a point where he figured out at a young age what he wants to do, and he's 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 doing that, and everybody's like, you don't you don't see that, you know. Mm -hmm. what I mean? So my hats off to you. I think that's that, that's absolutely amazing. So how how many years did you did you do that then? So you started at sixteen. How far did that go? It was always eighty percent informal. So yeah. I was an athlete myself, okay. and I would ride with my crew. So we had our crew and would ride. Uh, my brother was an Australian champion wakeboarder. My two best mates, uh, my two best men at my wedding were Australian champion wakeboarders. I was an Australian champion wakeboarder. And we just hang around in this little bubble of champions, athletes, the best in the game. And then when we would travel, so 21, I'm traveling over to the uh, United Kingdom, coaching water sports over there in 2002. Uh, then I'm over in America, up in North Carolina, 
uh, rally Durham yeah. up there chewing <laughs> chewing dip, chewing the Kodiak. <laughs> <laughs> on the Levi Garrett, you know, I got yeah. Malingo there, chewing tobacco up there, coaching uh, water sports there, and then uh, coming back to Australia, traveling across the country, uh, doing my sports and coaching water sports, and then eventually ending up back in the uh, United Arab Emirates and coaching over there. So it really took me around the world, many different places, and just that beautiful bubble of you know people who were becoming successful, people who were just the best of the best, yeah. world champions, elite, crazy. Now, do you, okay, so here's a question. Do you still wakeboard now in your leisure time? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> well, here in Taiwan, um, we're on an island, 377 kilometers long. But um, when you're here in Asia, you realize that most Taiwanese and most Asians really don't like the water. And so here we have a month of the year, and it's called Ghost Month. And in Ghost Month, this is when the portal between Earth and the spiritual world opens up and all the ghosts hang out at the beach. And so if you swim in wintertime, uh, sorry, during this um, ghost month, which is normally around wintertime, uh, you might get taken away to the other side of the cosmos. No kidding. And so there's a lot of fear uh, around the water here. So really the sport wow. here is not set up like it is, say, in America. The, the, me the mecca for wakeboarding is Florida. And so here they don't tend to do it, but as soon as I'm in Dubai, straight back on the water, wake surfing. Love it. Wow. That is amazing. I, I, learned, I just learned something. I'm, I'm, I've never heard of, of the ghost month. That is, that's very, very interesting. Well, if you hadn't heard of ghost month, uh, today is called Big Cold. That's what it is. It <laughs> translates into English called Big Cold. So here on the uh, Luton calendar, so we follow the calendar of the moon. Okay. Very different to the Christian and Catholic way of having the um, European calendar. Right. We have a, a lunar calendar. So today it's called Big Cold. And on Big Cold, it's always the coldest day of the year. So I went out today and it's bloody cold. And I said, my, I said, gee, wife, it's so cold. She goes, yeah, it's big cold today. <laughs> and then you have this big hot day. And big hot day is the hottest day of the year. Then you have the change of the seasons. And it's so accurate, the weather predicting system here. So big cold. That big cold. I wrote that down. I'm, I'm, I got to research that some more because that that is that's mind blowing. That's amazing. All these crazy things here, living in Asia, it's it's like a little Disneyland for me. Every couple of days, this is a good one. I play this game with my daughter on the way to school. I walk her to school every day, and we just talk the whole way. So she looks Aussie, she sounds Aussie, but she's lived in Taiwan her whole life. So she's got perfect Taiwanese and Chinese language. But then she's got this real Aussie, smart, Alec, quick, whipped, sharp tongue attitude about her. And I'll walk down the street there and I say, hey, sweetie, I say, I want you to translate this word for me. So I'll say, translate kangaroo. And she goes, oh, that's an easy one. She says, um, pouch rat. <laughs> I say, what? She says, pouch rat. So when you look at the Chinese symbol for kangaroo, it's pouch rat. So a kangaroo has a pouch on the front right. and his blood is like a giant rat. And so here they call it a pouch rat. <laughs> you know, the stuff that you're never going to hear anywhere else in the world, pouch rat. Like if I took that back to Australia, they'd be making T-shirts. Come and check out our pouch rat. <laughs> now something other fascinating, and I think this is a good um, thing for our audience, is when we look at the Australian coat of arms, right. so we have a coat of arms in Australia, 
On one side of the shield, we have a kangaroo, <laughs> a pouch rat, and then we have an emu on the other side. And the interesting thing about these two animals is that these are, I think, two of the only animals on the planet that can't walk backwards. So a kangaroo can't move backwards and an emu can't walk backwards. So what that symbolises in Australia is a nation moving forward. So oh. this is the symbol of Australia, a nation like moving that. forward. And there it is, the, uh, the pouch rat on our coat of arms. <laughs> How how are now? You said I know you're you're in you're not in Australia right now. You're in, in uh, Taiwan. Taiwan, thank you. And have have you since? How is that? Uh, have you been back to Australia since you know the the last couple of years? Everything's been kind of hectic. Let's put it that way. And wh- and whether it doesn't, I mean, whether you agree, disagree with it, doesn't matter. But it, but Australia seems to be in the news a lot because of things that have happened down there. Has have you been down there? Have you seen firsthand any types of effect of that in what you do? I haven't been back since 2019, end of 2019. So this craziness kicked off in 2020. So I haven't been home. Um, here in Taiwan. We are a very communal society, yeah. and it's a matriarchal society. So think about the the elephants. It's led by a female. It's a matriarchal society. So here, I'm not saying that we're elephants, by the way. <laughs> I'm just saying we're a matriarchal <laughs> society, and we have a female president. And when she says jump, we say how high. So attacking COVID is communal. So imagine this. We have 11 cases here in the country. 11. But that, I mean, you guys don't, you, I mean, you're on an island, so you're not necessarily growing outwards. You guys grow upwards. Right? So every, there's, and there's a lot of people there, if I'm not you, mistaken. Huge. It's 23 million people. Yeah, I was going to say. And you got 11 the cases. The population density, you know, if you're in a suburban area, um, you know, oh, this is kilometers, it's, you know, suburban area can be through 600 people head per 600 people head of people per square kilometre. Here in Taipei, it's 25,000 head per square kilometre. Where I am, it's 14,000 head per square kilometre. I live in a, there's a complex here, there's six towers in my complex, 15 storeys high, four apartments on each level, 320-something apartments here. So the population density is massive, but we have 11 cases on the island. That's it. 11 local cases. That, that's mind-blowing, and it's very telling. So that's what we have here. So 11 cases, they shut down the schools, they lock down the borders. And so coming back to the question about Australia, Australia's out of control. It's out of control. I've got friends who have been locked down for 500 days. They open the borders, and they're getting something like 55,000 cases a day in Melbourne. However, they can't get enough of the rat tests. So they can't test. So it's just spreading like wildfire there at the moment. The the southern parts in Melbourne, New South Wales, Queensland, it's out of control right now. They had curbed it, but um, I think people are flaunting this newfound independence since they've opened the borders up and they're having these super spreader parties. So they're going to festivals, nightclubs, bars, and it's just spreading really fast. They're not wearing masks. They don't have access to tests. My friend sent me a video the other day. There must have been a mile-long lineup 
to get a test. But people are lining up for 70 hours and then they get to their turn and they say, sorry, we've got no tests. Oh, Nothing. Go home. So I think they're doing the best they can under the situation, but very different to what I'm experiencing here, 11 cases locally. It's unreal. Unreal. And whether Australia is the same population. All right, Dan, I want, one. I want to get back onto your business stuff here. <clears throat> I'm looking at, at your website, and, and you really are. I mean, you, you, you are recognized across the globe, worldwide, and, and you've been coaching really since you were 16 you, when you started with the wakeboard business. So talk about the transition from, from the wakeboarding, and, and I want to talk about where this mission comes into you want to help a million businesses catapult their influence and, and, and on your website it says accelerate their impact and unleash uh, new income levels uh, tell us what that transition how did you did you wake up one morning and you said all right this is what i'm gonna do i'm gonna help a million businesses i'm gonna start today and then you just boom like what was what was your mindset there? What what prompted that? And what was the atmosphere like? And, and how did you get started? Well, it was all it was all a drama. It was all a drama. I was in the Middle East. I'd just taken this job coaching wakeboarding, and I'd become a local celebrity there. I was on the television, in the magazines, on the radio, and I was having a great time. Having the time of my life. I was twenty seven, and then one day I'm trying to access my internet banking. Bomb, bomb, bomb. Invalid password, bomb, bomb, bomb. <laughs> Can't access it. Try to ring my business partner. Doesn't answer the phone calls. Doesn't reply to the text messages. Doesn't answer the emails. I ring the accountant. I'm sorry I don't work for you anymore. Shit. And whilst I was in the Middle East, I lost my business. And uh, it was bad decisions. It was not having agreements in place. It was not being vigilant, not understanding about the business process and losing everything that I've been working towards for years. So I finished my contract, <laughs> I went home <laughs> to Australia, went home, um, tried to deal with the situation, no resolution, and I thought, I'm, I'm, that's it. So I left working for the family business, I went back to the Middle East, got another job, that didn't work out, came back to Australia Christmas time in 2007, and um, tried to get a job. But uh, now I'm 27 and a half. And uh, I've got no certification. I've got no university degree. Um, I dropped out of school at 17 because I had learning disabilities. Never finished school. And so I'm a 27-year-old child and I can't get a job. So I'm looking around and I asked my mates. They were concreters. I said, hey, can I come and do some labouring for you? Yeah, okay, come and do some labouring. Another mate, he was a chippy, went and did some builders labouring for him. And then I got a job controlling traffic. So in Australia, we call it a lollipop man. You stand there with a stop slow sign and you direct traffic with the lollipop. And that was my life. Now, I was working. You know, that's credible. Um, but that's, that's what I was doing. That was my life. I'm controlling traffic. Like, come on, you've got, uh, uh, you got red lights and green lights. It can do it automatically. But I'm here on a lollipop. And I was so embarrassed. I used to wear this big broad brim hat. I'd pull it down over my face so nobody could see me. I'd wear these big glasses so nobody would recognize me. And I just was ashamed because I thought, is this what life's about? Is this what my life's going to be? You know, it's taken me 27 years to get here and this is how bad it is now. 
And that was my moment. I just was like, well, fuck this. This is, this is ridiculous. And now you start to talk to God and you start to look at the heavens. You're like, is this what I came here for? Seriously? And that was my life. And I, and I got really fed up, you know, seeing other people driving nice cars and I'm holding the lollipop. People going to work during normal business hours and I'm holding the lollipop. There's people smoking ice on the job site. There's people doing drugs on the job site. And I just felt lonely. It was like I was being abandoned by the world. I'm like, fuck this. And I just made a decision that day. It was the time of the decision. I said, screw this. I'm going to turn my life around. I've got to reinvent myself. I said, because if history keeps repeating itself and I've got to here, I can't get any further based on who I am. I'm going to have to reinvent myself. So I, I left the hometown. I left the homeland and um, I ended up uh, driving over Sydney Harbour Bridge. And I looked up and I saw this beautiful big white building and on top of it, it said Emirates. And it was like God had just planted that sign there. I'd been driving over the Harbour Bridge most of my life and I'd never seen that sign Emirates. I'd had an ex-girlfriend who was cabin crew with Emirates. I'd been in Dubai and I went, you know what? Maybe I'm supposed to be in Dubai. So I quickly went down to the news agency, bought a newspaper and they said Emirates Airline is recruiting. I called them up, submitted my CV, went to the interviews and hey, I interview really well. I'm a personable guy. And they bought into my personality. They didn't ask about certifications. They didn't ask, do you have a high school certificate? Have you been to college? Do you have a university degree? They were looking for people with charisma and charm. And I charmed the pants off them. And I got the job. And they rang up and said, congratulations, you've got the job. Can you come over in six weeks? I said, no, that doesn't suit me. How about two weeks? And they said, rightio, we'll see you in two weeks. And I went to Dubai. And I had to reinvent myself. I still, still reinventing myself. I got a job as cabin crew. I traveled the world. I'd had learning disabilities in the past, but I said to myself, I've got to reinvent myself. So I went on this mission and I found a gentleman by the name of Edward de Bono. Now, he's a great author. I remember learning about his uh, educational ideas when I was younger, when I had my learning disabilities. And I went on a mission and I read all of 76 books he'd ever written. And I'd go from Dubai to Singapore. I'd buy a bag of secondhand books and then I'd take them around the world and I'd read them and I'd study this. And so I started studying psychology, behavioral therapy, cognitive behavioral therapies. I started to study leadership. And for that next four years, I just put my head down, my tail up, and I got busy reinventing myself. I went to every single course I could do. I applied for every internal position I could. I worked in critical incident stress management. I worked in peer support. I took all these programs. I used to wake up at 4 a.m. in the morning into a life coaching program in Boulder, Colorado. And I did that every week for six months. And I just had to reinvent myself because that pain was so great. I knew that if I slipped back, I'd be going back to the lollipop. But I wasn't doing that. So that's how it really kicked off in the Middle East. There's, there's like, I'm at awe right now because I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to word the next question that I have for you. And, and, and you've brought up a couple of times in the, today about you've had learning disabilities in the past. And from a personal standpoint, that really resonates with me on a personal level because I had that growing, growing up. I was held back a grade because of my reading and comprehension, and, and I still have trouble with it uh, to, today. And I, for the longest time, I thought that disability made me who I who I was. I let that 
get to me. It was very embarrassing. And I'm I'm in my relatively early 40s still. Um, but it wasn't until about five years ago where I realized, okay, how do I how do I combat that? Like, I can't sit and read books physically. Not for long periods of time. I might be able to get through like three or four pages and then I'm I'm in never never land or, or whatever, trying to stay focused. Audio books work for me. So now anytime I try to find something and see if it if it has an audio book, it just works better for me. And as much as I travel and whatnot, it's I, I comprehend it easier listening to it or have somebody reading it to me. Is that kind of the same thing that you experienced growing up? For me, I had a weird one. And um, maybe this will give you a little one of those awestruck moments again. And it was, it was weird for me too. So at age 11, I collapsed, came home, bag of bones, collapsed on the floor. And my mum's like, oh, I think there's something wrong. <laughs> now, I'd had nonstop allergies. My bronchial tubes had collapsed, so I couldn't breathe properly. Oh, I would run and my legs would collapse, a little bit like Forrest Gump. And so they knew there was a couple of things wrong. And then they started to have a deep look. So at age 11, I've collapsed and they start to do x-rays. I've got a twisted spine. My hips are out of alignment and my hips did not get good till this year. It's taken me 41 years to figure out and get my hips right. So I've always had that hip pain. Also, the neck, the neck was twisted and then the platelets in the skull were pushing down on top of the left and right hemispheres. Okay. And so I had been having a migraine headache, which was causing the nosebleeds for years. And it was because the, the platelets were pushing down the brain. So when I was in class, although I had perfect 20-20 vision, I had a visual impairment. So there was so much pressure in the brain that I actually couldn't see properly. So one eye is kind of picking up information over here it's bringing it through, but it's all getting jumbled up inside the mind. The right eye is kind of looking over here, bringing in different information. So if I was reading lines on a page, I'd be getting information over here on the left, and then the right eye might be picking up some information down on the right-hand side. I'd get all the words right, but it was all jumbled up. So I'd try to transfer information from the board into my book, and then I'd read it out, and people would be pissing themselves laughing, like thinking I'm on drugs. I had said all the right words. They just made no sense. So five years of remedial therapy, and they used to take me into a room and one, they'd have to massage the skull and realign the cranium. It's invisible. You can't see it from where you are. Nobody can see it because the pressure's internal. So they had to fix that. I used to go to an optometrist and they would put a tennis ball on the ceiling and drop it down and sit it in front of me and they'd hit it. And I'd have to sit there and just with my eyes, watch the tennis ball go around the room. But the worst one was I had to go down to a place called Strathfield. And this was where they'd put the real special kids. And they would sit me down. I'm in 11 or 12 at this stage. They'd give me a big piece of butcher's paper and some crayons. And I had to draw figure eights on a piece of paper. And I'd do it with my right hand, this big figure eight. And then the left hand, I'd do this big figure eight. And so essentially, they're trying to synchronize both left and right hemispheres of the brain. So I had to do that. 12-year-old kid drawn number eight with crayons. And then I'd have to go to all the catch-up classes. And the funniest one was, I look back on it now, they took me out of class and they put me into a room called the Space Lab. And the Space Lab was for all the special kids. 
And I thought maybe special meant like I was going to be an astronaut. Maybe I'm really special. But it was kids who were off the fucking planet. <laughs> so I go to this fucking space lab. So that was that. That was it. Was really it was so weird because you know I looked so normal. You'd throw a ball to me and I couldn't catch it. But if you put it in my hand and I ran, you couldn't keep up with me. But then my leg, my knee would just collapse out of nowhere, oh, <laughs> just like fall over. And so we we got that sorted out. And then just as I kind of started to pick up the pace, and and I really like what you said about reading there. I think for me, they were just trying to teach me the wrong stuff. You know, you put a book in front of me and I'm not interested. I'm not going to read it. Right. However, what I've developed, and I'm self-taught speed reader, I can read a book cover to cover in about 90 minutes. So over the past, um, say, maybe 10, 15 years now, I've read more than 1,000 books. I can read 100 books in a year as long as they turn me on. Right. And if it doesn't turn me on, I won't even touch it. Right. So I think with what I teach my clients is you've got to learn about your own learning style You've got to learn what's important to you. And if you pick up a book and it's not for you, put it down and don't feel ashamed about it. Go and find something that turns you on. And then there's, you know, there's four types of learners. There's visual learners. There's people who learn by seeing things. That's one leader, that's one learning style. There's also auditory people like you. Obviously, that's why you do a podcast. You like to talk. Yeah. <laughs> you probably don't want to sit down and write a book. But you could probably transcribe a book if you wanted to. Yes. And then you get the kinesthetic learners. They like they like to learn by step-by-step -step process. These are the kids at school who were great in the techniques workshop. They were great with woodwork and metalwork, things with the hand. And then you have people who are more AD and they just love to research. And the school system doesn't cater for all learning styles. A teacher can't sit down and say, hey, Adam, you're auditory. Well, let me read all these books for you. Right. We can't do that. Right. And so we've got to figure this out as we go along. But um, for me... I started to learn about this at age 20. I'm like, hey, I think my teachers probably had more disabilities than me. That's what I come to the conclusion. I might not have been learning disabled. I think they were teaching disabled. Right. It, you know, it, it's funny you said that. I was a high school teacher for a few years in, in, down in Arizona. And uh, it, was, it was fascinating because for years and years, I said, I'm not doing this. A friend of mine talked me into doing it. And I was like, all right, fine. I got sick of the school asking me to do it, so I, I, I gave in. And when I got there, I was surprised to how disconnected the teachers and the students were. First thing you have to do as a teacher, and this is my opinion, I've said this before, I know this is not a popular statement, but I'm going to say it again. As an educator, as a teacher, your job is to listen to the students. You're there to teach and help them get to the next step. And if you're taking education and just being a teacher as a job, you shouldn't be. That's my that's my opinion. You have to. It's a passion. It it, it really is a, a a labor of love being an educator, and you have to be able to listen. I was a part time. I was, I was a substitute teacher. I worked two three days a week at several different high schools. In every school that I went to, I have more respect from the kids than most teachers that have been there for 10, 12 years, all because I would sit and I would listen. I ruled with like an iron fist for the first few hours, but then around lunchtime and the rest of the day, I would open it up and I would communicate with the kids, and I wanted to hear what was going on in their lives, and when you 
and they did that and then they offered feedback and grades went up they weren't late for class anymore you know attitudes started changing for the better and it was this process and at my second year doing it i got asked by the district to come in and kind of do what they call a train the trainer mm. i got asked to teach the other teachers that have been teaching full time for far more years than I've ever been. And they asked me, this part-time guy, to come in to teach these teachers how they can communicate. And one of the teachers said, why are we listening to your son? And I'm a very blunt person. And I said, because you're not doing your job. And that was it. Everybody was quiet. I, I, they gave me an hour. I said, I need 20 minutes. I said, in 20 minutes, I'll teach all there was 15 teachers in this class. I said, "You give me 20 minutes, <clears throat> and I'll change your I'll I'll change your outlook on your kids. You'll either want to stay a teacher and you'll change, or you'll do everybody a favor and, and you'll go find something else." And that was it. And they were like, "Well, that's kind of harsh." Well, I'm I'm not going to sell you the hooker with the heart of gold. You know, I was like, it, "It's you're teaching the, our future, so let's mm -hmm. let's take that a little serious." Anyway, off on tangent. Um, but I, but I agree. Education is a big thing. I love the fact that you said there's, there's different ways of, of learning, and you have you, Dan. You've done so much, and you have such an, an awesome story. Uh, and I appreciate the time that you've spent with us thus far. I want to I want to go into just a, a few more questions before I let you go. You have some statistics here on your website that are very mind-blowing. It's under the, the title, The Harsh Reality of Business. 3% of business people have defined goals. 3%. I really thought that number would have been a lot higher. 50% um, of working hours are wasted daily. 71% of critical business decisions are wrong. I'll get to that one in a second because that one kind of hurts. Just read that out loud. 98% of your potential goes unfulfilled. That's depressing. And let me tell you why. Because as a business owner myself, I see that and I immediately start questioning everything that I've done over the last five, just five years. You take these numbers and explain how you, for, for people that are listening right now that are business owners that are going to look at your website, going potentially to, to work with you, to contact you, what would, what, would you tell, what would you tell a business owner that's listening right now why they should get in touch with you? No goals, no future. Goal setting is about your future. And I don't know if you know this, but you're going to spend the rest of your life in your future. And if you have nothing to live for, which are your goals, you're dead. You're walking, you're walking dead. And it is a harsh reality. They did these studies at uh, Harvard. This is where they come up with the numbers. 3% of the adult population don't have clear set goals and the attainment Let's just call it for their future. And so if you have nothing to work towards, you can't start to unleash 
your potential. See, somebody like um, Einstein, they said he used as little as 10% of his potential. The experts tell us that most people only ever tap into about 2% of their potential. See, what you and I are made of, our DNA, if you took this DNA and you stretched it out, it would reach to the sun and back 300 times. And that's what happened to me. I was on the job site. I knew this. I had learned those numbers when I was 19. I knew the numbers back when I was 19. And I thought to myself, if I'm made of this stuff, if I'm here for greatness and I am controlling traffic, this is not greatness. This is not me getting the most out of me. And so the DNA, what we're made out of, our ability to think, decide, and act, we can think an unlimited range of thoughts. We have 10 to the 10 to the 10 to the 1 neurological connections. So what that means is it's like the number 10 followed by 10 pages of zeros. We can make these connections inside of our mind for original thought. But my only thought was, how can I control this traffic and get paid this week <laughs> and repeat the cycle? And so we've got to find out what we're made of. So I went on this mission and I said, I've got to figure this out. And I, and I really have started to figure it out. And I came across different types of sciences. So I have more than six and a half thousand case studies, scientific reports into the way that people think, feel and act on how they decide, make decisions, take actions. I understand how people face different fears. So you think about this. If you set a goal, you've got to move towards that goal. Right. But how do you solve problems and challenges? If you don't know how you solve problems and challenges, how can you effectively move towards your goal? On the way to that goal, in business, you've got to start to influence people and contacts. If you can't deal with people, you can't make a sale. So all of us interact with people differently. Um, I'm confident, and a lot of people mistake my confidence for being an extrovert. I'm an introvert. I'm just very confident at being an introvert. And so I have to be able to understand how do I influence people and contacts to get them to buy into my movement, how to get them to work with me. You and I have to deal with the pace and the consistency of the environment. And if you put yourself in an environment that doesn't suit you, you will never get the optimal performance out of yourself. It's like I say to my friends, you're a bad driver. And if I bought you a Ferrari, you're going to still be a bad driver, but with a really nice, expensive Ferrari. <laughs> the Ferrari is not going to make you any better. And then all of us have to follow procedures and constraints. I'm a rule breaker. I hate rules. I love to break the rules. But I know that about myself. So the people who don't understand that, they end up taking the wrong jobs. And then what happens is they limit their potential. So we've got to understand our behaviours. With all of that comes our fears. There's four fears that all of us have to overcome. First, it's the fear of being taken advantage of. You might have a goal to build a million-dollar business, but if you don't deal with your fear of being taken advantage of, you'll never successfully employ you will never successfully delegate work to other people. You'll feel that even if you get a high performer in business, they're going to steal your ideas and set up shop across the street. Right. You could have that fear and you will fail. If you fear rejection and criticism, you're never going to share your story like we're doing now. You're never going to tell people that your mum was in porn. 
<laughs> they might look down on you. Thirdly, we've got to move out of our comfort zone. And our body is designed for homeostasis. It's the comfort zone. You know, our temperature, we'll just call it 36 and a half degrees. If the body temperature goes up by 10%, you start to cook and you go into a hyperprexic state. What do you do? You bring yourself back down to the comfort zone. If your temperature drops, you go into a state of hypothermia. What do you do? You bring your temperature back up to 36 and a half and you get back into the comfort zone. So most people get stuck in a comfort zone the whole life and they never try something outside of the comfort zone. So if you fear losing your stability and especially financial stability, you'll never play big. You'll think you're playing poker and you'll think you're calling all chips in. I'm all in! (laughs) Bro, it's a dollar. (laughs) Put the 100,000 on the table. And then finally, what really holds most people back, and this is the emotional intelligence component, they're so afraid of trying and failing. They're afraid of trying and failing and making a mistake. And they become perfectionists. And these people say, Adam, you know, I'm going to do it 110%. <laughs> you hear these other people, I'm in 1,000%. No, I'm in 80%. And I'll tell you why. Because all perfectionists have to get everything 100% right before they begin. Yeah. And what happens is they never start. So the reality in business is 70%, 71% of the business decisions you make will turn out to be wrong. But you can break the bank. You can break Wall Street if you just make 51% good decisions. So people are so afraid to try and fail that they don't even begin. And so we've got to understand these fears within ourselves. And that's what really caps our potential. They're the things that hold us back. I I really hope those of you that are listening are taking notes right now because he just dropped a whole bunch of golden nuggets for you guys right, right now. Daniel Tolson. Dot com. If you're listening to this, open up another browser. D a n i e l t o l s o n. dot com. Daniel, we're coming up on time, and I'm gonna have to have you back on the show because there's, there's a lot more that I want to cover with you. Um, and I, and I, and there's such good synergy here, and, and I absolutely love this. I'm gonna ask you, you you've given quite a few decision hours already but i'm gonna i'm gonna gonna ask again just just to see if there's another one that you want to give us feet are on the line right now clock's ticking you got to make that decision what is it what's the atmosphere like fear the fear comes up and the fear is going to come up for between four and thirty seconds and before you have an emotional hijacking You've got to get clarity of your mind. You've got to take control of those emotions and you've got to get back to an emotionally clear state. And only once you're in that emotionally clear state should you decide what is right or wrong for you. And if you've got to make a decision, always move towards your biggest fear. You're a military man. You always move towards the biggest enemy. That's what you do. I love it. Daniel, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Anytime, let's do it again. Absolutely. Folks, that's all the time that we have today. Daniel Tolson, check him out. His website, DanielTolson.com. If you're a business owner, I don't know what's taking you so long. You should probably be sending him an email right now. DanielTolson.com. Before we let you go, make sure you go check out Heroes Media Group, our parent company. Go check out all the shows, audiobooks, and all the cool stuff that they're doing this year over there at HeroesMediaGroup.com. Until next time. You've been listening to The Decision Hour.